Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Greetings, guys. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. As always, from Boston, this is Scott. Uh, from Los Angeles, California, this is Jim. And today we are coming with, I'll say, one of the lows. I don't know. We Borgo Pass, we we come with uh, we with everything, as we've said many, many, many times. We hit you with Frankenstein. We hit you with Dracula. And then we're going to, you know, gum with, go with some of the, you know, lesser known, some of the more, quote unquote, you know, just light hated films. And, you know, She-Wolf of London, the 1946 film is certainly one of those of the latter gets, uh, you know, bad reputation and, you know, has some hate amongst the the listeners. So if you're one of those folks, um, stick around. We're going to try to have a little bit of fun with this. And, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll show our hands, Jim and I, at some point, you know, throughout the, the retelling of this tale. But um, yeah, this we, is we, we this will endeavor to be more entertaining than the movie. I that's promise. right. It will coming in with it with that mindset, you know, we understanding and, you know, sometimes rightfully so this is not a, one of the fan favorites. So yeah. we're going to try to have some fun. So I don't hate this movie. I, I, it's not, a, it is not my favorite universal film, but just having rewatched it this morning, getting ready for the show. I'm like, there's some interesting stuff happening in this movie. This makes it kind of a unique part of the universal canon. And I'm anxious to talk about that. Yeah. It's the one thing. And I mean, I, again, I don't think you'd, you'd mentioned Jim before we got rolling, Jim and I had a quick sidebar and we're going to, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to hold the spoilers. I think we're going to be very, you know, free flowing here. And I'll just say, I think spoiler heavy uh, podcast from the beginning. So if you haven't seen the movie, Maybe go watch the movie and then come on back. Or if you don't care about it, then just roll along with us. There you go. So I'm going to come right out of the bat. I was not a huge fan of this. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, first of all, I, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not an actor. I have so much respect for the people in the profession and the people that work behind the camera. So I will never ever say hate hate anything because I, I mean, God, as a just a fan, I just respect what they do. But this, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd ever go back and watch this unless I had to. But one thing in my mind they really got right was holding kind of holding the cards to the to the vest. So you, it was difficult to figure out who. I don't say the killer was or who the quote unquote, you know, she wolf of London was. So that's the storytelling in that regards, I thought was done very well. Yeah. I I mean, it it works as kind of a mystery. I I think here, here's the deal. I think a lot of people make up their minds, whether or not they're going to like a film before they watch it. Uh, I, I, that's been my almost experience as a filmmaker. A lot of times uh, people have already decided I'm going to love this movie or I'm not going to like this movie. And, and they find ways that the film fulfills that, promise for them um so i think it's important to have the right mindset going into a particular film you go into jean-pierre Genet film differently than you go into a michael bay film right with different expectations if you go into this movie not thinking of it as a as a horror or a monster movie and if you think of it as kind of just a gothic story more like something like emily bronte would have written i think you're going to be less i think you're going to be more fulfilled with the with the experience and that's Having watched it a few times and, and knowing that ahead of time, I was able to go into it and and think of it that way as, as a, like a gothic romance, and uh, and in that way, it, it it hits all the buttons. I think the, and and She Wolf of London was not always the working title. I think the original title was oh my gosh, it was like girl, mystery girl with an awful aunt. 
There you go. No, it was like yeah, they, worst aunt ever. I think it was Allen Allenby House Curse or a Curse of oh, the yeah? Allenby okay. House. To me, that would have been great. I mean, it does. It's not going to sell the tickets at a She Wolf yeah, of London, yeah. but I think the rewatch value, like to me, you go in here thinking She Wolf of London. You know, maybe you love Werewolf of London. You love, you know, you know the Wolfman with, with Cheney, right. and you watch this film for the first time, and you, you know, probably a lot of people are just absolutely pissed. Um, and this probably doesn't have a lot of rewatch value versus if it was something like the, you know, the Allen B curse murders or something like that. Um, Possibly, but obviously Universal's goal is to sell tickets. So then they did. I don't know. I actually don't know how successful this movie was. I wouldn't be surprised if it was modestly successful when it came out. And then, you know, the, the reputation changes over, over time with when, so, so here's the big spoiler guys, ready? Three, two, one. There is no werewolf in she wolf of London. That that's, no one becomes a werewolf. It's all a, like a, a mystery and a ruse. So, you know, um, moving forward with that understanding in mind, uh, yeah, you can see you could see a lot of kids at a Sunday matinee being like, ah, "There's no werewolf." Right? They want to see the fangs. They want to see it you was know, just a mean ant. <laughs> they can go home and have that. Exactly. Yeah, they want to see the fangs. I mean, it's probably just, you know, a few years before this, they saw Cheney, you know, as the wolf man or, you know, maybe Henry Nichols worth out of it. Right. Exactly. Right. All right. She Wolf of London. This one's starring uh, June Lockhart as Phyllis Allenby. And as she was looking up on IMDb today, she's still with us. She is 96 years old. Yeah, um, I, I think she was interviewed by the film. She doesn't remember much about doing it. I think she's really. I think this is pretty much her first film. Yeah, very very early on, and we'll go into you know some more more television, um, action dramas, and whatnot. But yeah, June Lockhart, thankfully, lost is in her, space. Lost in space, of course, yeah. but still with us. Uh, Don Porter as her fiance Barry Landfield, and man, I'm watching this film for like the first hour. I'm like, I know this guy, I know this guy, and I couldn't place him. Finally, I went back. IMDb. So he is the mystery writer in Night Monster. And if you pick that up, Jim, you know, you know what? Night Monster is something I need to rewatch because I haven't seen it in a while. So I'm excited to uh, I'm good. That's that's on my list pretty soon. And I'm going to I'll check. I'll be checking him out in it. Yeah. So So he plays he's kind of plays a mystery guest from a similar character. Um, But yeah. So the Mm -hmm. mystery writer in Night Monster, Um, Sarah Hayden as Martha Winthrop, Phyllis's. And I'm going to put this in parentheses. Aunt. Aunt, yes. We're gonna, we, we think she's the aunt, but not quite the aunt. We'll get into it. Uh, Gene Wiley as Carol Winthrop, Phyllis's quote unquote cousin. Right. Not Maybe not. Yeah, um, yeah directed by Gene Yabar, who we know. Uh, I know, Jim, you're a huge fan from the uh, House of Horrors, The Brute Man, The Creeper. Horrors, yeah. yeah. Back um, to back, right? I think he did House of Horrors and then he, he did this film. Yeah, exactly. So, but both um, produced by uh, Ben Pivar, who'd come over from the the Western era, not the Western. I'm sorry, the noir and crime did part of uh, Universal to to kind of run their horror thing. And he did, you know, these. He oversaw the House of Horrors, the Brute Man, all those things. So, uh, yeah, this is this is 1946. This is the year after the war ends, and here's Universal, uh, you know, churning them out. And Jack Pierce listed as the director of makeup, which. Very interesting because not really any real makeup, you know. I mean, as as we understand makeup in a monster movie, obviously, obviously there's regular makeup. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he had to do, but I'm sure having his name up well, there gave it a well, little he, bit. Of, you know, he's like Vera West, where I don't think Vera West dressed every single person in every single film. He was the head of the department, so he gets the credit. They didn't they didn't give like all the assistants and the dressers and the seamstresses and the you know the people who wash the brushes and stuff uh, 
you know, credit back then. It was a, it was a briefer kind of thing, not the 12 minutes of credits we're used to now. So right. yeah. So Jack Pierce gets the credit, even though I'm sure there were some uh, uh, assistants there sitting around doing the, uh, doing the actual women's makeup. Yeah. I don't think Jack Pierce did beauty makeup. It just wasn't what he did. <laughs> beauty makeup per se. If, if the photo of, of uh, Elsa Lanchester doing her own eyeliner in <laughs> Frankenstein's any, any clue. I don't think she let him near her when it came to that kind of thing. Uh, he more did the gruesome stuff. So who knows? Anyway. Anywho. So yeah, let's get rolling. So um, film opens up with a really quick blurb about something about an Alan B. Kerr. So pretty much the film takes place in this, this, you know, mansion, the Allenby mansion. Um, and of course, Phyllis Allenby is, you know, clearly part of the Allenby family. So this curse set that we're going to learn a little bit more about regarding, you know, kind of insanity and, and whatnot. So it's a little bit, um, a little get too deep into it. So basically the film opens up with two inspectors. So one of them, um, Inspector Pierce, who you may remember from um, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is the other um, inspector. De- Dennis Hoey, uh, the, the yep. police inspector constantly chasing werewolves. And never believing in them, by the way. Ever, ever, ever. So he's great. Love him to death. Yeah. And then so his partner, kind of the, the goofy sidekick, um, Detective Latham. Um, it's a both from Scotland Yard and Detective Latham um, against the inspector's um, demands and, you know, whatever is a big believer that there is this wolf, a wolf man or wolf woman, something attacking folks. So basically these, you know, two, um, you know, the inspector and the detective are on the scene of a local park where a man was, um, was I don't know if he was killed or at least attacked Attack, by yeah. a, a werewolf. Yeah. By 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 something that that yeah that that uh, Detective Latham is convinced is a werewolf. Latham is the one that for the first half of the film really keeps the the idea of a werewolf alive. Um, no one else is really yet talking about it until uh, you know about halfway through the film. So he's the one who keeps like reminding us like oh, I think it's a werewolf, maybe a she wolf. You know, <laughs> he he keeps that going while everyone else touts it. Yeah, for some reason, yeah, for some reason, like, oh, it's either a man or, or a woman, uh, I, whatever. Yeah. Like, he's he's not biased. He's he's a uh, he, he believes that a woman has every right to be a werewolf as a man. Absolutely, he's progressive <laughs> like that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, he's a good role model for uh, for everybody. Yeah, he's That's a right. equal opportunist here. Women should be able to grow up and be werewolves just like men. So exactly. So we're in a scene here where there's a there's something there's a wolf quote unquote attacking people in this local park. So we have now police presence and we fast forward really quickly to uh, we meet Phyllis Allenby for the first time. So she's on horseback with her fiance, Barry Landfield. And um, I guess they're going to have a, a quick little fun horse race to I guess the win- <laughs> the winner of the race can choose their wedding day. Yes. Um, so really quick. So for whatever reason, Barry wants to be married immediately like, you know, that that next week. Um, I think her original wedding date was like a year from now. So whatever. So really, she wants really, to be like around, around winter or something. She wants a winter wedding and he wants to, to get this happening. Just get it done and get her moved into the house. Yeah. And he's, yeah. yeah, he wants to sew his oats hair and she is very attractive. So you can't blame Barry for, you know, want to get this deal done. Yeah. Anyway, she's, she's, she's darling in this, especially this beginning when she's wearing like little riding up and stuff like that. I don't know how old she was at this. I assume she was at least 18. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, uh, like a Valerie, Hob- like Valerie Hobson type look, just beautiful eyes. Yeah, just really, really. Yeah, giant, uh, uh, Olivia de Havilland looking almost, just yeah, really yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, really quick horse race and Barry wins and they're going to get married very, very shortly. So this kind of becomes a, a plot point here. So the idea is that once they get married, um, Phyllis is going to move out of the Allenby house. 
And um, we can fast forward as far as you want, Jim, but basically Martha, her quote unquote aunt and Carol um, are living at this house with Phyllis under the guise that they're a family. And we learn you know, not too much further in the movie that they're actually not blood related. So Martha and Carol, who are, you know, mother and daughter, have a quick and I'm going probably really fast in the movie here. But I think it's probably good to jump around a bit just yeah. given the plot. So basically, Martha is extremely concerned that um, if if Phyllis marries and, and sells the house, they're out. They're basically going to be out on their, their toes. So Martha had worked for Phyllis's dad as just a housekeeper and then had a daughter. Carol and basically just stuck around the house. So when Phyllis's father or parents died, I honestly kind of glossed over that part. They just stuck around and basically, you know, Phyllis had always called them, you know, Aunt Martha and, and cousin Carol, but, you know, under this false guise with their family, but they're actually not. And this becomes a, basically the major plot point of the movie. Yeah. Well, the, the film glosses over it kind of too. The film uh, like focuses on it for a while, but it glosses over some pretty important salient details that do make it a little confusing. The way I understood it was okay, Martha, the aunt, quote, aunt. Um, to Phyllis. Phyllis is our main character. Um, Martha was have was in love with, or, or Phyllis's dad was in love with Martha. Martha decides to marry another man, and she marries like a poor guy. Goes off. The guy dies after she has Carol with with the poor guy, and then Martha has to come back and work as a as a housekeeper for the guy who she said no to after he wanted to marry her it, i that's 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 what i get from it which is a very strange confusing kind of thing um i don't think i don't think phyllis knows that she's not her blood aunt no I, no not at all I, I get the feeling phyllis's parents died very when she was very very young they don't really mention how old she was but they died in a in an accident uh um when she was very young and i think F uh, martha i think phyllis has grown up with martha telling her she's her her actual aunt um because martha again so just to reiterate so we can move on after this guys i promise <laughs> <laughs> but it is really confusing so so martha is afraid that when phyllis marries um barry she's going to go off and, and, and do that and martha's going to lose her job basically taking care of this estate and you're right like you said like she and carol are going to be out on on their hindquarters and if you think this gives martha a motivation to keep phyllis from marrying barry you're right and that's basically the whole story yeah <laughs> i mean i mean we go through a little convolutions and twists and for a bit we kind of think maybe carol is the she-wolf or something but it, it does fall into kind of the scooby-doo thing where like the person who seems sinister is pretty much the bad person <laughs> right there wasn't a whole ton of mystery i mean as it played out and even you know the housekeeper um hannah and once, you know, everyone that she can, you know, find throughout the movie that, you know, there's something wrong with Martha. Martha's acting really strangely. Yeah. yeah. Blah, blah, then turns. Hannah's a great character, too, uh, um, uh, played by Ellie Malian, uh, who's actually English, but she plays it with a like a Scottish brogue accent and stuff. Um, so uh, you, know, you know who almost got this role? Some trivia? Yeah, I know. Uno O'Connor, right. right? Uno O'Connor. And I, I feel like Uno O'Connor would have toppled the balance of the entire movie. Oh, my and, gosh. And it would have fallen over on itself. She's she's. She's like, she's like trying to land a 747 in somebody's driveway. You know, you just <laughs> a little bit too much, too much dynamite there. Uh, I, I, th I think Ellie is great in this. Um, the, the movie's called She Wolf of London, even though we, we really 
never go anywhere except this house in this park. Uh, we never go to Barry's house, you know, his own place or something. So Barry's a lawyer. He, he, the guy who wants to marry, you know, Phyllis. Uh, he's a lawyer. He calls himself a barrister because it's England, even though he has no English accent. And uh, he's part of a, a partnership, uh, like of with his father. And his father's like a, a sir. His sir, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, noble person. Yeah. <clears throat> because when he meets the cops, they're like, "Oh, you no, Mister, no, 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 this is a son." Um, uh, this movie features a plethora of awesome Cockney speaking uh constables uh by the way just it like, is ne- next to next to uh next to Abbott and costello meet jekyll and hyde i think there maybe are more uh slicker sloped mustached cockney bobbies in this movie than than most other universal films i was, ever I was gonna say invisible man oh there you go there you go right you're right right but not that i'm comparing the two films because invisible man <laughs> is of one of my all-time favorites this one is not but yeah you know the the you know the, the cockney you know, like i said the bobbies there some some entertaining uh parts here and i thought you know detective latham uh lloyd corrigan who who plays him did he was he was fun he was a good he's time, great right? no no he's yeah. he's he's what we would call uh now a a a conspiracy theorist right i mean he he's he's after the He's after the more fantastic uh, possibilities for uh, for who's who's attacking people in the park rather than the obvious. Most of the cops think that it's just it's it's dogs or wild dogs or possibly some kind of, you know, crazy person or something. He's more pretty much believing in something supernatural is at foot without a lot of evidence. He just he seems to like that idea. That's right. So, yeah, for whatever reason. So, again, right. I mean, you guys who are listening now basically know the entire movie. And uh, this, Jim and I are just going to have a little bit of fun with this. So, Ma, so for whatever reason, so Martha, I guess, assumes that once Phyllis gets married, you know, this whole, you know, this whole guise of them being related is now this veil is going to be lifted for and whatever reason, right? And it also seems like someone will still have to take care of this house because maybe she thinks Phyllis they'll sell this house once Phyllis moves in with with Barry. Maybe I mean, that's the does, reason. Does Phyllis even know she owns the house? Maybe she's maybe she's more afraid bit once Barry gets involved and being the lawyer type, you know, we maybe start looking into Phyllis's finances and figure oh, out hey, Phyllis, that's you true. own this you own this damn place. Phyllis, I don't I mean you don't know your relatives. Right. Um yeah, it's very possible. Uh uh Phyllis is uh, I guess the nicest the her character. I guess the nicest thing we can put it is like she she's a delicate person. She's she seems emotionally just a little bit very fragile. Um, she's someone who's very susceptible to to the kind of mind games and, and other things her aunt starts playing on her. Um, so her aunt has chosen her target well. But I get the feeling maybe she's been raised to be a little... It's it's like Martha's raised her, telling her she's a little fragile, telling her she has to be careful. To, I think I think... I don't think Martha's worry about losing all her, her you know, deal here to to you know phyllis started when she got engaged to barry i think i think it's i think she's been playing this angle for quite a few years now definitely right? yeah even right after the first murder like phyllis is extremely yeah. um anxious and i think at one point yeah. says to 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 barry well there's no man in the house and i think they use that yeah. term you know at least two or three times during the movie that yeah. the women or phyllis has a right to be nervous because quote unquote there's no man in the house it is an interesting setup where you have this big house and you have Phyllis, obviously, Aunt Martha, Cousin Carol, and Hannah, the housekeeper. It's all it's this dynamic with these four women of different sort of two different generations, possibly three different generations, depending on how old Hannah is. And uh and and I think the the interplay between these women picking sides kind of and deciding who who whatever and and, and really pushing the forward story forward, uh 
Barry, Barry sort of reacts to things. Again, he's that kind of typical universal impotent hero kind of guy. Barry doesn't really accomplish much in, in the movie. He's he's definitely an outsider. And the dynamic that's happening exists within the Allenby house. So, yeah, I, I in that way, I think it's a unique film and pretty interesting for its era. Yeah. And this is something that kind of bugs me with the movies. It's like, you don't, I mean, especially early on in cinema, like you know, they're not having these like outlandish or like these amazing story arcs. But everybody here, I feel, is extremely flat. I mean, the only one that even remotely has any kind of arc is really Martha, because uh, she's the one who's, you know, yeah. she's the most proactive. You know, she's the one, you know, killing and she's the one, you know, oh, kind right. of setting the stage to frame, um, you know, to frame people or, you know, to put Phyllis in an asylum and all the stuff. But everyone else here is extremely flat. Like you say, I mean, Don Porter, I mean, who plays the Barry Landfell character, extremely impotent. I mean, I'll use your word. Um, I mean, he really does nothing in this film. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> I get the feeling he's someone who hasn't had to do much to impress people his whole life. He, he you know, being born the way he is and stuff. Um I mean, he just kind of shows up and he, you know, he'll sit down and and talk to Martha. And even, you know, later on in the film when he's kind of clued in from Hannah, the housekeeper, yeah. that Martha is treacherous and she's doing, you know, yeah. possibly bad things to Phyllis. So he barges in with his, you know, chest kind of puffed up. He's like, Well, I'm marrying Phyllis. I can see her anytime. And Martha's like, Well, no, you can't. He's like, well, fine. I'll come back tomorrow. He's yeah, yeah. He is. Uh, Martha really commands the thing. Um, uh, Sarah Hayden, uh, by the way, I, I she's the standout talent in this film for me by far. She she plays this amazingly saccharinely sweet aunt, you know, taking care of her poor niece. And no, 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 you're fine. You're not hurting people. Da, da, da. And you can see in her eyes the lie. Um, she's doing really good work. And at the end, when she she kind of turns and goes full bore, you know, supervillain, um, it's honestly, she's really kind of scary. Um, I love her in this movie. Uh, dare, dare I say, she might have a little bit of that Charles Lawton, a little, little twinkle in her eye. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Oh, no, I, I think she's fantastic. She's in, she's in my <laughs> favorite christmas movie of all time uh the bishop's wife with carrie grant um oh okay fantastic kind of dark po- it's, it's right around the same time like post-war um uh, came out the same year as, as it's a wonderful life and kind of you know vanished off the thing but my mom loved it and so i grew up watching it and so it's, it's a funny but a little eerie christmas movie and she plays this kind of spinster uh secretary in it that, and she's she's honestly hilarious in it so sarah had range and 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 again she's she's my favorite part of this movie i just like watching her her mental wheels you know calculating and trying to adjust to each new thing and outsmart barry which isn't very hard and uh, yeah. all that stuff so yeah again she does a great job i would have loved to have seen her in something a little bit I don't know, something with a little more meat on the bone. Like, I think she would have, I mean, and she, like you said, like she definitely owns this, this film and does a great yeah. job. And yeah, towards right. the end there, when she's kind of outed, like, her, you know, the whole demeanor changes and you can definitely see her, you know, as like this, you know, psychotic, you know, and, and she's killer. really, she's not saying the words in a creepy way. She's really acting and she's, she's as for, for, uh, the style of the era, she's very much inside the character. Um, She's not just saying the words in a, in, a, in a sinister way. She's actually, you can see she's internalized the character a little bit and she's she's doing some work and it's really fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so the only other way char- ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the only other character we really haven't discussed is uh, Carol Winthrop. Right. So it's Martha's daughter and Phyllis's 
quote unquote cousin. So during the one part, so I think more when Martha's a little bit more, a little bit more outed, like we don't quite know that she's the, you know, the killer, the she wolf of London Mm -hmm. type. But so basically now she is trying to play her daughter, Carol, into the arms of this Barry Landfield. So obviously her whole motive is trying to prevent Phyllis from marrying Barry so she can keep this or, you know, keep the living in the, the estate. Keep it in the same. And then her sort of side bet is that if she can hook Carol up with Barry and she's working overtime on that matchmaking the whole movie because um, uh, Carol has a a sweetheart who is this poor uh, painter guy named Dwight Severin, who's played by uh, Martin Koslack from House of Horrors, by the way. Right. Um, he's got a little part in this, which is great. And, and you know, Gene Yarbo brought him back for this one in a, in a small bit. Um, she's in love with that with with her poor painter friend uh, guy who obviously her very domineering mother, Martha, doesn't approve of because Martha's big mistake in her life, as far as Martha's concerned, is that she married a poor guy. And, and that's what put her in her you know current state here. Um, uh, but Carol's great. Um, uh, Gene Wildey is 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 really I mean, she's gorgeous to look at, obviously, um, but she's really charming. She's got a few good moments with with uh with june uh you know the two 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 characters together and she talked about mm-hmm. i have broad shoulders you can lean on them and stuff she's very enticing and i think at some point we're we're towards the end of the movie we're tried to be the movie tries to make us start thinking that she's even from the beginning of the movie, the movie tries to make us think that she's possibly the she absolutely absolutely i was just i was just going to say that the movie is trying to frame her as you know being afflicted with um lycanthropy or you yeah. know, she is she is the werewolf, you know, she is the killer, which I think uh, might've been a cool twist. Honestly, if like yeah. a really beautiful girl is, is the werewolf, I think that might've been fun. Definitely. But, yeah. I mean, that's what you um, believe. And I, again, when I, you know, preface what I said earlier, they do the writers do a nice job. Like they do not show their hands until the very end. Like I, as I'm watching yeah. this, even this morning, I was in the fact that shit, it wasn't really Carol in this part where you know, she gets on like that, that little red riding hood cloak yes, and walking yes. around like the, the foggy streets. I'm like, Oh, it, it was her. Well, it's a good it's a good misdirect because she puts on the cloak and she's wandering through the foggy, yeah, the park and stuff to meet her her boyfriend late at night. Right. So in doing that, the movie throws you a few twists and her. She's doing that, and then there's always scenes where when she goes out, the there they have these two big dogs in the house, and again, it's supposedly for protection because there's no men in the house. Um, you see the dogs jumping over the wall after her and following her back and forth, and so you're kind of left to think maybe. Maybe she's just going out, and when the dogs go out with her, they attack people. I don't know. Um, that plot point is never exactly quite resolved. But yeah. So one thing um, Martha does. So again, she's trying to basically trying to frame either. Tr- it's again a little confusing. Either trying to basically, I think she's trying to play on Phyllis's naivete. So Phyllis yeah. Allenby is a big believer in this Allenby curse. So very naive. So basically, Martha spends the the movie basically trying to drive Phyllis insane. So there are moments where Phyllis is literally waking up in the morning and there's, you know, a newspaper cut of a murderer. There's a little boy who's murdered and there's a constable who's murdered. And then Phyllis will look down and her shoes are filthy or she has blood on her hands. So, you know, obviously thinking that, you know, she's becoming... um, She's becoming insane, which is drives her. Yeah. yeah. And she, well, I mean, she makes Phyllis really believe that she is the, the wolf, uh, that she's turning into a wolf. And so because the Allenby curse, they go over very briefly at one point in the in the in the film um, uh, does have to do with that, that that um, they have this kind of dark history, this pagan history in the family and that um, uh, 
Phyllis has dreams where she's like running with wolves and she's, you know, being feral and she's attacking people with wolves and stuff, um, which I think is really the is a combination of, I think, her being an impressionable young woman, the systemic, probably mental abuse that, that Martha very subtly has inflicted on her for years um, and and possibly uh, that Martha has been microdosing her with with some kind of hallucinogen or something all this time, because there's this ongoing subplot that Martha uh, brings her warm milk every night uh, for bed, and she puts she puts some kind of dope or something in it that knocks uh, uh, Phyllis out, and possibly also gives her like these vivid hallucinatory dreams. Right? Uh, she mentions the dreams of you know of um, you know existing thousands of years ago and basically becoming or being involved in like these pagan rituals right and you know out hunting as almost as a wolf so yeah you don't really understand and again i think one of the last scenes with martha and phyllis at the very very end the climax of the movie is yeah martha's giving her the milk and then the camera actually becomes you know fuzzy and foggy right right it gives her double exposure right that phyllis is you know clearly being drugged by by martha but up until this point you just don't know you think martha is just a dutiful you know, quote unquote aunt or, or kid giving a ma- right. to Phyllis. Can, can I ask a question? D- does anyone actually drink warm milk before bed or ever? I, I've, I've honestly, uh, do you, Scott, have you ever, drink, I've never drank warm milk in my I, life. Is that a thing I've, real people do or is it like a movie? I don't know. I'm thinking back of young Frankenstein. Is like a warm milk perhaps? Yes. <laughs> yeah, old teen. <laughs> uh, it's all, we always go back That's to That's a great Frank. question. I don't know. I, mean, I, I should ask I my parents. I personally have never known anyone who drinks warm milk. Anybody, if you want to comment when we when we post this episode on Facebook, by all means, let us know if, if you, in fact, drink warm milk and if you have it tested for hallucinogens beforehand. It sounds absolutely disgusting. I mean, I, I, I don't mind. Yeah cool milk but i'll have to maybe my parents from another generation i'll see if you know my grandparents gave them warm milk i'll we'll we'll get back to you guys on that i i I guess if it's not brandy it's going to be warm milk right (laughs) that's the solution for everything at least in this world i actually do have that noted jim because we love the fact that brandy is always a cure for everything in this movie it's warm milk catch all no one gets fair um so that's the first. I have a few questions that this film brought up to my mind. I'll be asking them as we go through. Yeah, let's. I mean, my gosh, yeah. I don't know what else we can cover here. Let's yeah, let's, get <laughs> the, let's get into the questions. Let's have some fun here. Um, okay. Well, what's my what's my next question? Okay. Okay. Here's my one thing, and and I think this. I we should get this out of the way because I think this has a lot to do with the film. Do you, Scott, think that because we know that one of the original plots to the Lon Chaney Wolfman from 1941 involved the idea that that uh, Larry Talbot just had uh, was insane or had a mental thing where he believed he was turning into a werewolf, but was not actually, in fact, turning into a werewolf. And it was all either a scam or it was just all in his head. Do you think She-Wolf of London was Universal trying to take that original idea that got discarded in favor of the actual, you know, wolf person werewolf story and wolfman and recycle it a little bit and then replace it and change it up a little bit to make it fresh do you think i think i think you're right on because it's i mean from what i've read there were a lot of executives at universal that wanted to go with that that concept that larry talbot yeah. actually didn't physically change so right. that makes a ton of sense i mean this is the time of you know obviously this is a you know new universal post um post lemley so um yeah. at this point you know they're kind of trying to squeeze out everything they can out of this this horror genre so um i think i think you're dead on i think you know there are probably enough executives that you know you know probably you know still on payroll that said well you know we tried it your way last time 
we're going to do it, you know, this way, this time. And we paid someone to write that story. So let's, yeah, let's absolutely. Try and I think I, if anything else, maybe that was just the jumping off point for this, this idea for the, for the story that, that maybe it is all in someone's head. And if it is in someone's head, then why, you know, how did it get in someone's head and, and who, how, you know, how's that turn into a dramatic story? Um, and so I, I think if you think of it that way, then this film is, it's interesting because it's, it's not only a, it's a successor to the Wolfman, because it came five out five years after, but in a way, it's like a prequel to the Wolfman because it takes place in 1900. It takes place 40 years before the Wolfman story begins. Um, I'm not sure why the, they decided to set the movie in 1900. It, it doesn't seem like there's anything in the story that would necess would, would mean it couldn't be taking place in 1946. Uh, well, except that I guess they'd have telephones or something. I don't know. And and I and I kind of I mean I like the worlds of you yeah, know like this it, movie yeah. and the worlds of the Wolfman because. It sounds like werewolves, you know, I don't say they're a real thing, but I mean, assuming you remember, you know, Sir John had, you know, books and books on, you know, werewolf and lycanthropy. So it was certainly part of, you know, not the main culture, but certainly the learned, um, you know, educated folks of society. This was a thing. And it's the same thing with this movie. Like that detective, you know, minutes into this movie, it's like, oh, it must be either a werewolf or a werewoman. It's got got to be a werewolf, man. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Sorry, everybody from actual England uh, for that. Um, I I do like they, they... Instead of the uh, Eastern European Romani type of of werewolf mythology, this film channels a little bit of uh, like Scottish myth. Uh, with she hangs a lantern out outside her window to to ward off the the, the dogs barking. Um, there's a lot of little and 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 that Hannah, the housekeeper, is, is Scottish, obviously by by her speech, but also she wears a lot of uh, plaid. Um, it, it seems like maybe the some of the characters, even though it takes place in, in London, um, uh, does it ever actually, wait, does the film actually ever actually say it takes place in London? Or do you think that was added afterwards in the title? Do you think, do you think this film when they made it was actually set in Scotland? And again, they make no reference to, a, Cause there's a, no reference to the city a at all. Place. Right? I mean, they meant kind of, a, I mean, you have an idea of the time, but never, a lo- never a place. Or like um, Northern, like it could be like more Liverpool or something. I mean, there's a lot of Cockney accents in it. So it wouldn't surprise me. Although there's a lot of completely American accents in it as well. So it is universal after all. Right. Exactly. Um, Barry is like, you know, right, right, right off the, uh, the boat from like Brooklyn, not Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, he calls himself a barrister. So, I mean, we know it is set somewhere in kind of Britain, area specific it is area in specific and i wouldn't be surprised if the the uh the name of the film the title of the film was added later and was it was sort of retrofitted and they were like yeah we'll get away with with this being in london so again you know basing it off of werewolf of london you know it as 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 a recognized title and ripping it off off of that i don't know so I get a question for you, Jim. What? So if, how would you have rewritten? I'll say the ending because they left this thing pretty wide open till the end. How would you, of uh, assuming that you know Martha wasn't going to be the one? Could you have figured? You know, okay. I even if it was like Barry, you know, that might have been like a t- real crazy twist, like Possibly. something to like just blow this movie out of the water. Like if you could go back and and rewrite you know, say the last, you know, 15, Uh 20 minutes of this movie, what, what do you think, what would you do? You know, you know what I think I would do? I would have it maybe somehow be that the, the drugs Martha is giving Phyllis in her milk are actually keeping her from turning into a werewolf. And as soon as she stops giving them to her, Phyllis actually turns full werewolf and um, decorates the wall with her 
maybe that would be fantastic that would be that would this would obviously be a much more current type uh, <laughs> horror uh, version of the thing um maybe i would martha is just so obviously villainous from the beginning i i think i would have it be a twist where maybe she's not a good person but in her own way she has been trying to do good and maybe um maybe even killing people in a way to protect phyllis who knows I, there, there'd be some twists and turns um I think I'd all I would I would keep Barry more or less useless. I think this is most interesting as a as an inner dynamic between women uh, of of this era. Um because uh, it is it's you know the film it looks like it's like hello dolly if it was about werewolves i mean all the women are all in these like you know corsets and and little like brooches and flowery and hats hair's all and, done up really big yeah, and yeah. stuff like that it's really funny it's it's yep. not a lot of horror movies set in the ni- the 19 aughts you know we we have 1890s we have 1920s and stuff the 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 aughts are an interesting era for this yeah i really do i feel like I mean, I give them, I guess I'll give them some, some credit for, you know, going with a non werewolf story and, you know, hoping that it would float. But to me, like, I, I think this would have, the payoff would have been, you had to have some kind of transformation, something. I, I, I yeah, there would, there has to be, you have to get your, your nickel. You have to get your wolf. You have to get your wolf, whoever it turns out to be. Even I was thinking like Hannah, the housekeeper, where she's always kind oh, of on the Oh, would that like, be great if Hannah was somehow, oh, that'd be great. And she's always, and she's like, so they're like the red herring is, oh, Martha's up to mm-hmm. something. And she's always telling Barry, watch out for Martha. And all of a sudden, you know, Hannah, you see her transform into like this, like old Scottish yeah. werewolf. They do that a little bit in the remake of Wolfman from 2000 and whatever it was with, yeah. with Benicio del Toro and stuff where yeah. um, where the, the Sikh uh, servant uh, knows all about the werewolves or something like that. Right, so, right. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I think this film and maybe some of the other universal films of this era, um, I, you know, the Val Loon films that come out like Cat People, especially I think we should mention Cat People that were much more about the atmosphere rather than the, the visuals and the shocks and the, and the actual it's, it's, it's the suspense rather than the outright horror. And I, I, they were done very cheaply and they, but they were effective and they're very popular. And I, I get the feeling that people in universal had watched those movies and were kind of thinking maybe there's a way to make this a more of a, a human drama story and not, you know, um, yeah. uh, but, but in doing it, they end up, with just a lot of fainting and, and weak, weak passing out ladies. And uh, you know, it's, it, it's like, they just don't quite pull off the darkness as well. Um, yeah, it's I just mean, a little too posh. It's too parlor room, I think. And yeah, I think that's I mean, what, yeah. I mean, Phyllis spends a lot of time in bed and, you know, as yeah. I'm kind of, I'm watching some, some clips now. And I, th- I think what, you know, really took my mind out of this film too, is that it looks really cheap. I mean, you, you know, rewind five years to Wolfman, some of those yeah. outdoor, I mean, it's all, done on a set but man some of those out those outside woodland you know fog machine shots of you know cheney and evelyn acres and they're trying to do that here but man it looks really really cheap they they have have a lot of fog blowing around but like the trees look plastic yeah they don't Um, have the depth the wolfman had that depth that there were they they go that whole soundstage and man you can see you can see back hundreds of feet and that's the that's the word jim you got it and um and i think that's i think that's budget but i also think that's maybe the visionariness of of the filmmaker sometimes and and the time that they have, you know, to, to exercise their vision. Who knows if this had had a bigger budget, more time to be shot. Uh, Yarbrough probably could have put, cause Yarbrough is a really talented director. I mean, obviously house of horrors is atmospheric as all heck. Um, uh, you know, who knows how much power he had over this, or, you know, if you just got brought on, you know, here, here's your, here's your next gig for the next two weeks. And here you go. I know this, this film went over a uh, schedule and they had to film almost up to Christmas Eve. 
Um, yeah, there was some funny stories about yeah, it went like three days overdue, and they were like they locked down the set so the actors wouldn't go to like Christmas parties, away, and, go to parties and stuff. Right, yeah, right. It's really funny. They're filming this like boring process screen uh, uh, scene for <laughs> no fun, but but I, I I definitely see Val Luton's fingerprints on this movie a lot. It, unfortunately, there's just none of that. Like in Cat People, you have that scene in the swimming pool where where Simone Simone is, is stalking the, the other woman and it's all the shadows and the sounds and stuff. And, and that's why that movie works. And, and this one, it, it's just, it's, there's not, there's really nothing kinetic about this film. There's, right. there's nothing really until right at the end, there's that, you know, two old women chasing each other down the stairs kind of, uh, yeah, like you, you nailed it, Jim. I mean, that was the word I was searching for. There's the depth perception in Wolfman. Yeah. Um, it was just amazing. I mean, to go back, I so appreciate that film so much more now after watching yes. this. This feels so two dimensional. It's like almost like yeah. you're playing like Super Mario Brothers. It's like you know, left to right side scrolling on some of these scenes. Yep. No, exactly. Um, here's my here's my here's another question for you. Why did the dogs hate Phyllis? If Phyllis actually isn't the werewolf, why did the dogs hate her? Has, you has know, Martha it, trained the dogs to hate Phyllis? That's what I was wondering. Was it a Martha thing? Were the dogs? I I don't know. I don't know. She, I don't think there's an answer she, to that. Did she like? like the, did she put hamburger in Phyllis's pockets when she's not looking or something? That's the thing. Like, the dog. The, the dogs loved Carol. Carol, the dogs were fine with Barry and maybe they just because well Phyllis was just so jumpy and full of anxiety that maybe that set the dogs off I w- maybe it's just a happy accident and worked out for uh for her yeah, yeah. I don't know um like when you get to the end of the movie and you find out she's not a werewolf you're like well wait now why do the dogs but then it starts making you think why do dogs actually not like werewolves like <laughs> it is it's a great misdirection you think dogs you know might like werewolves and you know i think that's kind of what they were playing for because these dogs loved carol every time carol would get on you know little red riding hood yeah. um you know outfit and go for a walk these dogs were like all about going for a walk with carol so that was yeah. again another misdirection that you know maybe the dogs are you know hanging around with their own yeah. species of sorts right but, i mean yeah, I, I, know, know. I know some dogs have like size dysmorphia and they, they can't figure out but most smaller dogs i know don't bark at bigger more dangerous dogs they tend to you know kowtow to them a little bit so um but, but it's true that, yeah these, do- that, these dogs that trope in- now now i think about it uh it make is i'm interested in that yeah it's true i mean these dogs encounter i think every every character in this movie and they they're fine with everybody they hate phyllis i don't it's, yeah. it's a good maybe they don't like poison milk i don't know yeah maybe maybe she smells like poison wow that's a good idea what if she actually smells like poison milk to them they're like hey hey you're drinking don't drink the milk. milk. Don't they're drink the to, milk. They're, they're trying to help just her. Trying to let her know. Yes. They're trying to be like, you should throw that up. Instead of like, you know, seeing yes. seeing eye dogs, they're like, stop yeah. drinking poison milk dogs. If I could only talk. Um, uh, it's you know, um, so 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 to pick up a little bit. So so real briefly, Phyllis is is all but breaking off their their wedding. Her her and her and Barry's wedding. Um, convinced that she as as. You know, Carol keeps coming and saying, hey, hey, did you hear a little boy got torn apart? She says this at breakfast one morning. And he's like, hey, did you hear that one inspector that came here that one time? Yeah, he got killed by 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 a wolf. Um, she, she's like the town crier. She no one, no one else in the house reads a newspaper. Uh, Carol's always the one coming in and <laughs> letting them know these amazingly grisly stories. And she's so upbeat about it. She's like, oh, yeah, no, he was he was torn apart. Apparently, oh, I know. Apparently, I, he, I, apparently there were pieces all over the place. Wow. I love that. I know. I love that scene. I think it's so again, Phyllis is in bad mouth that comes in and Phyllis is like, you know, she hears about the boy. She's like, oh, there's a boy mutilated. And yeah. I must have done it. And Martha yeah. like puts like the smirk on. She's like. You're you're just a little sickly thing. There's no way you could tear apart a little boy. You could never do that. And and, and you can tell she's 
that, that sneaky lady. Like so matter of factly, um, with those yeah. little girlish hands, there's no way you could tear apart a little boy. Right. Stop um, being foolish. But but it yeah, all part of her plan. So so it's you know, it's like it's like what is Martha's plan? Is it is her initial plan to to convince people that that Phyllis is insane because she thinks she's a werewolf, so therefore she she you know needs needs her to stick around as her guardian or whatever, even and she can't get married. Or is her plan to actually convince people that she Phyllis is so insane that she's actually killing people because she thinks she's a werewolf? I don't know. You know, it, would she be happy with both of those? In both of those instances, get her what she wants, right? Like, well, I give her, I give Martha credit. I mean, she's got a few different plans here in parallel. Yeah, she's doing, she's yeah. playing the whole Phyllis bit, and then she's playing the whole Carol bit too, trying to get Carol and Barry together. And you know, meanwhile, right. she's knocking off constables and you know, little boys. Yeah. And- no, and she's literally like she's killing like policemen yes. by herself. I mean, she's I. Let's just give Martha her due. She's she's a she's a go getter, man. I mean, she should do. Not that we can not that we can do that kind of thing, but no, yes. no, no. Please do not attack uh, police officers with a small hand rake or whatever it is. She's <laughs> we never really get a great look at the um the rake thing, and, and and it moves around a little bit. Phyllis wakes up with it like in her bed somehow. Yeah, it's like the three pronged fork, you yeah, know, for like yeah, gardening. Yeah. 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 Right. And then, yeah, it's like a trowel, I guess, or something. Well, I, I don't yeah. I don't know much about gardening. I know less about gardening than I know about sailing. So um, <laughs> there we go. Um, but yeah, but maybe maybe there's multiple ones. But but um, it's it is what Phyllis. Or, I'm sorry. It is what uh, Martha is using to simulate the 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 attacks of a, of a wolf. But, you know, she I, and I know Martin Kozlak's not a huge guy, but she full on attacks Martin Kozlak and, and almost does him in. She's a formidable physical opponent you well, know. well during these attacks too it's literally it's like wolf noises yeah yeah and snarls and stuff so what is that is she is she practiced that i wonder or something like I mean, that? that's like, not a human you know yeah. i mean yeah. that, that's the funny thing too like, yeah again like she's attacking the you know what attacking the guy on the, the park bench and just like no no we hear him and it's i think it's pretty much the same noises from uh from wolfman too it totally was absolutely which which possibly is uh is Lon Chaney Jr. I'm not sure. Remember, he did some of those, yes. those noises himself. Yeah. So yeah. he might have a little cameo. Speaking of cameos, um, and on IMDb, and I believe in the credits of the film, I'm not sure, um, there is a an actress credited as young Phyllis, right? I um, did, fill me in. I, I missed that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, young Phyllis. Yes. Which makes me think that at some point in the film, there was a flashback scene. Um, I believe they even mentioned it in in imdb's trivia section um it was like her parents death maybe yeah i I wonder and i wonder if you saw martha at that moment or something taking Mm. her in and and figuring it out um yes um joan wells is credited is uncredited as phyllis as a child which does make me think i think they filmed something like that i think they filmed a flashback or they filmed maybe a, a a prelude to the to the to the film and then uh decided to discard it or decided it was too confusing or, or something like that but that's an interesting yeah uh, thing that the you know the film the shape of the film was changed at, at least slightly uh before release so i got a question for you jim would you rather have see the film footage of young phyllis or would you rather have the <clears throat> frankenstein meets wolfman um monster dialogue oh that's an and i'm being thing. Um, that is such a joke. I hope I hope for your, the sake of this podcast, you answer correctly. <laughs> um, I, you know, I might not give you the answer you, you want. I, I would like to see 
the monster dialogue in Frankenstein meets Wolfman just just to hear uh, what Bella did. And I'd like to see those scenes, of course, and stuff. Absolutely. However, I actually think that the, the the film works really well in the in the structure it currently has. We'll get that. I cannot wait to do that movie. And I think oh, yeah. um, without I think I'm not even going to I'm not even going to show a hand, but that should be a fun one. I, I, th- I think it's going to be a, a hoot. Um, uh, let's see. What else do we have to talk about? So so, you know, here's something I do like about Carol. Uh, you know, while while her mother, who's very domineering, and I I, I feel like Carol has her own. <laughs> Carol moving forward is going to have her own issues. Uh, <laughs> obviously, at the end of the after the end of this movie, when she finds out what her mother did and who who she was, but but her mother's also also just not very nice to her. I mean, Mar- Martha's really not nice to anyone. She's not nice to Phil. She's not nice to uh, Barry. She's not nice to Hannah, and she's definitely not nice to her daughter Carol. Um, but but as much as her mom is trying to hook her up with Barry. She has no interest in Barry. I mean, she she doesn't dislike him. She just he's not for her, man. She she likes her poor starving artist, you know, boyfriend. Martha. Right. No, Carol's uh, Carol's got some morals, and yeah, and then yeah. I think once Martha realizes that, then we kind of see Martha's full descent into madness, and we can get right into this kind of this climactic scene of when she's giving yeah. um, Phyllis the the milk, and at this point, right. she's you know it's basically it's like any it's like Scooby Doo or like any of these those horror movies, like you know the villain always has to you know basically and this is how I got away with lay out their exact right lay out their whole plan right before the good guy is completely dead, of, of like James Bond um, almost, and and in, in this case Hannah. <laughs> Right, right. Um, Hannah's the one who saves the day in this movie, which is great. It's 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 a, it's a Scottish housekeeper. Um, yeah. The this final scene, it's interesting because the film is shot pretty straightforwardly. It, it's it's lit very nicely, and I, you know, as 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 far as a cheaply made looking film, I mean these these foggy you know scenes in the uh, in in the park are kind of neat, and I do like the idea of this this white cloaked and hooded female figure gliding around through the through the park uh, at night and stuff in the in the fog and stuff it's pretty cool um but it's filmed you know the movie is filmed pretty straightforwardly and then suddenly we get to this all sort of what finale right where um so what what's happening is uh carol finally has a heart to heart with with uh with phyllis i think phyllis finds the the claw thing or or something maybe um that that that, that martha's been using so 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 carol I think I was right. Carol and Phyllis have this talk. Carol comes down and says to her mother, I'm going to the police. Something's going on here. I think, you know, something, someone's messing with Phyllis and I'm, I'm going to bring the police in here and, and they're going to sort this thing out because, because Barry's already kind of half accused her. Um, She's really had it with, with, with her mom's domineering thing. She wants to marry her painter and stuff. And I think she's just had it. So Carol was really a pivotal Right character in this at, I mean, at this point, yeah, because yeah, exactly. She runs to the police, and this is kind of what pushes Martha over the edge. So now it starts getting very dark. Where instead of trying to drive Phyllis insane, he's she's going to kill her and pulls out like this put this knife, right? And basically is now going to frame her for a, a suicide. Yeah, um, and you know, ultimately we can we can get right to it. So yeah, but Martha pulls out this knife, and then Hannah. The housekeeper who's kind of skulking around Martha sees Hannah and basically goes after Hannah yes. with the knife in her hand and then right. takes a tumble down the stairs. And this we is had a this pretty great chasing between two middle-aged women in bathrobes down the <laughs> stairs. And and Hannah managed to get down the stairs pretty well. Martha's um, this is why you don't run with knives. Uh Martha uh trying to chase her down, trips over her dresses or whatever, tumbles, and when she gets up, you find that she's fallen on the knife and it's it's penetrated right into her 
chest and stuff. Man, pretty the, awesome, it, actually. It is. I mean, again, night, you know, movie the forties. I mean, postcode. Yeah, you're like, that's and what I, you oh, get. <laughs> I'm actually the scene just came on. Give me one. I just I want to see this. Where this? I think the knife. Oh, there it is. She's coming up. Knife. Yeah, I mean that knife is sticking right out of her. I thought that might have been blood, but there's no blood. But yeah, knife is sticking right out of like almost her rib cage, mm-hmm. and she kind of Martha leans up expose that you can see the knife and then falls right back down on it and then you know the detective constable or the um you know the, the inspector comes in and you know barry runs up and finds his drugged out phyllis and they share a nice moment well in in, in perfect universal leading man fashion barry shows up right after martha has fallen on her own knife and mortally wounded herself <laughs> not not before right after so good job buddy um uh way to be ineffective the, the the there's a few cool things and 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 what i was leading up to was suddenly you know when when martha comes in the room with the intention of killing phyllis suddenly the camera starts tilting do you see you remember seeing definitely like suddenly we're at this we're at this it's called a dutch angle where you know it's most famous for the Batman 60s show they would always fight shoot the fight scenes you know all, all with the camera at an angle um and it just throws you off a little bit suddenly you're like well wait something's not right here i feel a little you know, goofy here. Yeah. Um, it's and, a, and it's really neat. It's, it's almost like, it's almost like like uh, from Phyllis's point of view, but it's not looking directly in Martha's eyes. Yes. Yeah. No, it's very subtle. It's, it's, it's really neat. Um, uh, and, and I do. And again, we talked, I talked about before, I'll just talk about again about, um, about uh, Sarah, Sarah Hayden's, you know, final delivery as this thing. And, and this is where, again, we get into like a real, like, kind of a Jane Eyre type type of thing where with you're seeing this proper woman who's obviously you're slowly realizing just how mad she is. And it's she doesn't like drool or you know bark or anything like that, but not bark. But um <laughs> but she's watching her she's it's a slow scene where she slowly makes her drink the whole glass of milk. And she does you know you know um uh, June Lockhart does it in in like a few sips. We by now we we're pretty sure what's going on with the milk, and she's relentlessly making her drink and making her drink. It takes its time. This end scene it goes on for a little bit, and it's it gets creepier and creepier and creepier. And, and again, like while this film just doesn't have any of these boo scares, and while it doesn't have you know a whole lot of makeup or, or, or whiz bang effects in it, um, this is a neat. This is a creepy scene between these two women, and I, I I do. It's about power and and vulnerability, and yeah, I. If you, I mean, you I guess, get to this scene in the movie, I think you're like, okay, that was kind of worth it, maybe. I get. I mean, again, so I, 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 I wish you know Martha's. I guess Martha. I really wish Martha would have had some better um, reasons for killing little boys and killing constables. But at the same time, you have to, you know, kind of appreciate you know Martha's desperation. She's a single woman, yeah, um, with a daughter. And again, I'm thinking about you know these poor women post or during you know say World War II who are, you know, in a home with, you know, preferably children, or, you know, assumingly children, and they lose a husband. And just right. the, that share, the fear and the desperation. No, like, what am I going to do now? I have this home. I have a family to feed. Yeah. And pro- I'm assuming, you know, again, 1930s, 1940s, you know, they probably didn't go to, to college. They probably don't have any, you know, um, you know, right. there's probably a lot of people in this situation. It's interesting. And, and, you know, for all her, evil whatever you know martha's motivation comes out of her own vulnerability actually because she's she's not she's a woman who's not of means and stuff although she's had this job for 20 years now you feel like she probably could have saved up some money but you know 
she probably eats for free, right? Free room and board. I think so. Again, the stipend, right? I, I wish the, pl- the plot could have been a little bit tighter, but we're going to, it is what I, it is. I really think the, the, the biggest failing is that her motivation is greed, which is really just not an interesting motivation ever in, 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 in fiction or literature or, or, or it's kind of, it's, it feels very boring. easy. Yeah. yeah it's very it's easy. It's boring. Yeah. Yep. And there's no wolf, but anyway, if her, if her, if her resentment was that, that Phyllis was the daughter she should have had or something, maybe with the guy she should have married, you know, I don't know that you, you could have done it, but this is, this is Monday morning quarterbacking. It needed in exactly. Yeah. It needed something. She needed a little bit more motivation than just, than just greed. It would have made it more interesting. And again, I'm, st- I'm going to, you know, stick to the facts that this movie needed, Something supernatural, I think. I, or I think you don't call it she wolf. Yeah, you don't call it she wolf of London. I mean, you're almost cheating the audience. Yeah. I mean, you sit down for sh- to watch she wolf of London, and there's no there's no wolf. You might not even be in London. Yeah. I can see why people like you know f the, f this film. And I mean, I mean, House of Horrors actually did have some horrors in the house. It wasn't really the house; <laughs> it was an apartment. That's true. Um, but but you know, the brute man was in the house, and, mm-hmm. and he was kind of horrific. So it, it delivered. I guess at the very, I think if the if this film, if there's a lesson to be learned from She Wolf of London, it's that you really do have to deliver on your title. If 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 you don't do that, you are going to have disappointed people, and and that's word to the wise moving forward, right? I'll, I'll take that, uh, you know, as for, you know, seriously. Well, I mean, and this is out of career, and this is in the eyes of you know you and I living in 2021. I mean, yeah. 1940, you know, 46. I'm sure they weren't thinking about you know rewatch rewatchability any value to and i and i don't know, know this for a fact i mean maybe they didn't care maybe literally they were all trying to grab a buck and just didn't care like they who knows if they probably didn't well, i think universal had x amount of you know rentals in theaters set up in advance and they had to deliver a movie for those you know, yeah they had, like they, had, they had to put some butts in some seats and stuff so yeah you know this this obviously got them you know that much further down the line um uh, here's something that this movie made me realize, and and I've been watching old black and white movies so much all, all this time, and it never really occurred to me that whenever anyone looks at, at like uh, when when uh, when Phyllis looks at her hands the more first morning she wakes up and they're and they're all red, um, she she looks and she says blood, and in I I can even remember like some um, uh, Abbott and Costello movies where they look at the floor and they're like look blood. In black and white movies, you always have to point out the fact that something's blood because it's black and white, and otherwise people might think you just spilled ink, right? Right. Oh, like, like Psycho. I, ne- I yeah, I never thought about that. Like you have to point out that it's blood because no one can tell because it's black and white. Think I know about the disadvantages you're working at with that. That's true. I know. Fascinating. Blood. There you go. Hey, you know, I'm glad we talked about this. I I know it's it's not everyone's favorite Universal film, but I mean, our mission is to to you know, if we can, to talk about each and every one of them. Uh, you know the highbrows and the lowbrows and the the cheapies and the and the big budget ones and stuff. And in the interest of that, this is this is an interesting chapter in Universal's uh, uh, film history. So here you go. it is. I would never ever disrespect. Like again, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm, I'm just I'm literally just a fan. And I would never tell anybody to to you know not watch this film if you haven't seen it. Check it out and make your own opinions. But you know, for those that you know have seen it multiple times and you still have some hate. Uh, I you know I can understand why like this is you know it feels like it, <laughs> I understand your hatred I can I can because you feel you do like you feel a little bit cheated like you go into you know you go into Best Buy and you've got a you know a coupon for you know twenty percent off a TV and they kind of bait and switch you like this is not there's nothing in this film regard regarding She Wolf of London well it's more it's more like if you go into a Best Buy and all they're selling is like lumber 
right? There you go. Exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> it's yeah, not, yeah. Again, it's not fulfilling on the promise. Uh, yeah. Uh, on the outside. You go to Subway and they're only selling pizza. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's kind of not in the mood for that. That's why so, I came here. So, hey, um, but yeah, anyway, uh, I'm glad we got to talk about it, man. I am too. No, this I'm so glad again. We, we're going to hit everything. So she of London was on the list. We hit it. And um, the haters are going to hate. And it's certainly our privilege and your uh, your right to do so. But, you know, always good talking to you. I think uh, hopefully I, I think I had a I had a blast having some fun with this one and not taking I, it. Again, I, I, I just I hope we were just as entertaining as movie or more. So uh, that that was our goal. So hope we did uh, I, uh, accomplish that, guys. I certainly hope more so. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Scott, thanks very much. Yeah, man. All right. Thank you guys for listening to the Burger Pass Horror Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Gould. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Herons. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Thank you.